I'm your host, Nancy Trader. Welcome to the Stop Digging Podcast, where we'll help you dig out of whatever hole you're in. Here, you can connect with experts to listen and learn from their experience and get advice for your challenges in business, wellness organizations, and relationships. Here, you can borrow from others and find what you need to create the life and work you want. Hi, this is Nancy. Thanks for joining the Stop Digging Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about resilience and overcoming adversity and how to deal with life when things aren't going your way. And Susan, I know you've been checking into this. Get us started on this today. I would love to. I'm super passionate about leadership. I've been doing it my whole life, developing leaders and being a leader. Even when I didn't want to be, somehow I always managed to be in charge of everything. And there are certain people in this world, like our guest today, who have that same issue where even if they don't want to be in charge, they're in charge. And one of the qualities of a leader, a skill that is absolutely vital in today's turbulent, changing world is the skill of resilience. And so I have a little bit of research that I wanted to just kind of put out there and why it's so important from a global point of view. We know from research that global markets and business and organizations have a higher engagement rate. In fact, it's been measured at about 44% higher when the skill of resilience has been increased within that organization. Stronger customer loyalty up by about 50% over organizations that don't focus on and develop resiliency as a skill. Increased productivity up 50% in organizations that focus on developing resiliency in their leadership. There's lower absenteeism, lower staff turnover, and an engaged employee is 86% less likely to leave. That being said, on an organizational level, let's dial it down into what leaders have to do to have resilience. And what is resilience? So resilience is the ability to bounce back within a set criteria of function. So it's not just bouncing all over the place. It's maintaining when there's a fluctuation in the situation that you have to operate in. And resiliency is built by a process called renewal. And the renewal is the ability for a leader to shift from a fight or flight resistance, all of the resistance behaviors into a more positive flow, which is resilience. Resistance takes the form of why me, self-pity, passive aggressive behavior, conflict, personality problems, stalling, blaming, procrastinating, name calling, politicking, brownout, blackout, Those are all resistance things that people do. The renewal process where they become more vulnerable, they become less reactive, more participating, more trusting. They can articulate their communication. They have more optimistic solutions and they do relationship building. They manage their stress levels and they are able to make clear decisions on a clear success path. So those are the kinds of leaders that we want. And That is the kind of leader that we have today as a guest. And so, Nancy, tell us who we're excited to have today. Well, today our guest is Mark Rodriguez. He's going to share his remarkable story of resilience and empowerment. He's defied the odds of overcoming a life-threatening challenge and has gone on to become a dynamic speaker, coach, and the founder of the Lung Transplant Stonemason website where he shares his journey of triumph over adversity in this really life-challenging situation that he had. Now, I I don't want to share any more about his story because Mark is a remarkable, dynamic individual. Welcome, Mark. Thank you for being with us today. No, well, thank you for having me here as a guest tonight, and thank you for your kind words. The pleasure is ours. You know, as Susan alluded to earlier, or not alluded to, but when she spoke about the the qualities of leaders today and how it's so important for us to be 
you know, we hear that word a lot, but, you know, oftentimes we don't really know what it means, but you really brought out those qualities that we need to see in leaders. And Mark, I'm really excited to hear from you. But before we get started, I want to ask you this. Every hero, heroine, and villain has an origin story. What is your story? What happened to you that got you started on this path? Well, if you're talking about my journey of being an organ recipient, what initially put me on this path was having Superman disease. I'm sure you're wondering what that is. That's the one where we think we're invincible and nothing can hurt us. I started doing stonework when I graduated high school and I played college basketball. And on my breaks, when I would come home, I would do stonework. And after college, I messed around in the movies and doing some modeling for a couple of years. And then I settled into doing my stonework full time. But for many years, I was not operating in safety, but I was operating in ignorant machismo. Well, after two and a half decades of this, I attained a lung disease called silicosis fibrosis. And in 2010, that's when I was diagnosed. This disease is uncurable and it doesn't reveal itself until the end stage. That's when life interrupted hit me harder than any hammer I've ever struck my chisel with. That's where my fight began. That's when I had to embrace my warrior spirit and mindset and fight for my life. This was something that I was, I, I don't like to say I was sick. People would say like, how long have you been sick? I'd get mad. And I would say, I'm not sick. I just need a double lung transplant. But I was needing a double lung transplant for a year. And almost to the day that I went into the hospital, I got the call and jumped on a plane from Santa Fe to Denver, med flight. And it was a 12 and a half hour surgery and one that required the surgeon using a hammer and chisel to remove my solid as stone lungs, which is ironic because these were two of the tools that I used to build my career. And now they were being used to save my life. But for a year, I struggled very, very mightily. It was like breathing through a straw for a year. And you were in the hospital for a year. So so our listeners understand that. You weren't just walking around, right? I wasn't in the hospital for a, an entire year. Okay. When I first got sick, I was, I was in there for eight days before they figured out that I, I had a lung disease that was killing me. I was 8% lung function. When I first got out, I couldn't even breathe outside air. I was on oxygen full time. And then on January 17th of 2011, I started pulmonary rehabilitation. And that was a very humbling experience for being a former college athlete, being a high-performing stonemason. It took me 15 minutes to walk into the hospital from my truck, and I could only work out for 12 minutes. Four machines for three minutes apiece, and I was done. And then it took another 20 minutes to get back to my truck. Well, it was at that point when I got in my truck feeling very defeated, wondering how much I would have in this fight. I looked in the mirror and I saw myself and and then I just, I made a vow. I made a vow to God and I said, I don't know how long I have in this fight, but I promise you I will not quit. And as warriors, we understand that our fight may lead to our death, but we are not fixated on that. We've accepted it and we move on in our fight. And if it does lead to that, then wherever you show up next, you show up as a warrior and nothing less. And this 12-hour surgery, it was pretty rough. Like I said, they had to remove my lungs with the hammer and chisel. I lost so much blood. They had to give me like eight and a half liters. I think your body only holds 11. But I was supposed to be in a coma for seven days, but I woke up a day and a half later to everyone's shock. And I walked out of that hospital in eight days. That's incredible. So... I want to stop you right there for a minute because you you told us a lot here and I kind of want to go back. That is just an incredible a series of events that led you to that point. So was that over the course of a year? So you one year, yes. Okay. And that's only half of it, Nancy. There's still a whole nother uh, transplant. Oh, I know. We'll get to that. Because you pointed out a few things. You were talking about how you were a top player in sports. You were this top athlete, leader on your team, a captain. You did modeling. You worked in the movies. These are all highly 
valued positions and experiences. And I'm sure you got a lot of attention for that. And it must have felt really great to be doing these things. And then suddenly you find yourself in this position where you can't breathe and then diagnosed. When I know you were saying this was all, you had this like Superman disease, you call it. And when you said you embraced your warrior spirit, where did that come from? I mean, that idea that you accepted it, because in society nowadays, people don't want to accept things, you know, when we have our realities, right? How did you do that? Well, I was very fortunate to have a father who was a, a true leader of men. He never let me learn how to quit anything. He never let me quit anything. And he was my coach in high school, but he's been showing me how to be this way since I was a young boy. I remember when I was in the hospital and the doctor had just come in and told me that I, that I was dying. The only thing that could save me was a double lung transplant. But I more than likely wouldn't make it that long because it was a lengthy process. So I've been facing doubt since the very beginning, since a few days into this thing. Well, the doctor left and my, my father was coming down the hallway, him and my mom, when the doctor walked out of the room. And he saw him go out of the room. And then he walked in and he said, I just saw the doctor leave. What did he say? And my father was a man who was a disciplinarian. He was all about respect. And I snapped at him. And he really wasn't the kind of man that you snapped at. And I, I said, he said, I'm dying, Dad. And he looked at me and he took a pause and he just calm, kind of calmed himself. And then he said these words. And these were probably the most important words he ever gave me in the 45, 44 and a half years that that we were together on this earth. He said, well, you better get busy then. And I looked at him like, what? And he says, well, you better get busy. Either stand up and start fighting like a warrior for your life and for the ones that are important to you or go curl up in a ball in the corner and give up and quit. But don't waste anybody's time. So you got to get busy and make up your mind. And I'm going to remind you, son, I never raised a quitter. And then my mom followed that up with, son, you, ha you have to give it to God. The kind of help you need right now, God's the only one that can help you. And so I did that. I stood up and started fighting for my life. And I gave it to God. But I had a big why. And that was my daughter who was, I think she was like 14 at the time. And there was just no way that I could look at her and then be okay with quitting. And I truly felt that I was teaching her the last lesson I would in our lives together. And that was that you have to fight no matter what, no matter how big the battle is, no matter how bad it is, you can't give up, you can't quit. And that's what my father taught me. And I truly felt that this might be the last lesson I'd ever teach her. And I was teaching her about not operating in the tools of the week. And then those I consider making excuses, blaming others, wallowing in self-pity, complaining. I can assure you, if you use those tools, all you'll ever do is weaken yourself because we're only as strong as our weakest weakness. And if we're not constantly working on turning those weaknesses into our strengths, then you might as well ask the hamster on the wheel to move over and join them because you're not going to get anywhere. And Let me interrupt you for just a minute because I, I, I want to just uh, punctuate some of the things that you're saying. Because first of all, I think it's super powerful that your dad came out with a very Shawshank Redemption word of wisdom there. Get busy living or get busy dying, right? He he put the choice right back in you. But I also wanted to point out your leadership skills because when leaders lack motivation to do things for themselves, they always become extremely passionate about doing the right things so that it helps other people. You, uh, My third observation is that you didn't see a disconnect between being a warrior and fighting and also being weak and dependent on God. So somehow that's reconciled in, in your heart. Well, the way I look at it is recognizing that you need God is actually, it's not, it's not that, that you feel weak. You know, it takes a strong person to ask for help. And, and it takes a strong person to admit that they can't do it. Most of us at times in our lives, we think we can do it alone. And that's where we that begin to fail. Was that different from what you what your faith was like prior to that? Well, I knew God. I, I knew of God, but I didn't have the kind of relationship. 
that was necessary to have the kind of life that God wants us to live. I was that guy that I always said, well, if I want it done right, I'm going to do it myself, or I don't need anybody. I can do this. And I quickly found out that that there's a lot of things in this life that I could not do. And fighting for my life solely alone, just by myself, was definitely the biggest one. I needed, see, when I was working and I was at, at the height of my career, I was strong as a horse in my body. But the problem was that my mind and my spirit or soul were not as strong. And God makes us up of three parts, the body, the mind, and the soul or spirit. And you have to strengthen each equally for a stronger whole. And I didn't have that. So when my body failed, the other two parts of me couldn't compensate. And, you know, people talk about hitting rock bottom. Well, I didn't hit rock bottom. The rock was on top of me. I was on the bottom of the rock. So I had to figure out how to get from underneath the rock to get to the top of the rock to be at rock bottom. Now was a whole nother added battle there. But I started by strengthening my spirit, which led to being able to strengthen my mind. And like the body always does, it follows. The thought becomes the word, becomes the action. Well, if you believe you can do something and you get it here and here, you've won more than half the battle. The actual physical act of it is not the hardest part. That's just the body following orders and being obedient. So it can't be the hardest. Well, that reminds me very much of uh, military leadership development, the learn, be, do model, right? It's not enough that you just learn something. It's not enough that you just do. You have to be it too. So that's part of a growth model. Yeah. So I, you know, when you're talking about being weak, developing the strength to ask, my curiosity was a little bit piqued because I'm curious about who was with you at that time. You know, I've been in in doctor's offices where there are people who don't have any advocates or help, and they're hearing this news, and it's just a lot to process. You mentioned your dad and mom came. Did you have anyone else in your life that was sharing this burden with you or helping you walk through that process? Uh, well, I can't really say that I did. There were other people in my life, but they weren't uh, weren't in a real supportive role. Has that changed for you since you've gone through all of this? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Okay. So yeah. tell us about that growth, because, you know, the whole leadership developing relationships and that resiliency of relationship building, that's powerful stuff. Well, I just look at it like no matter who's around you, you're going to have to fight because it's your fight. And Nobody really knows what your fight is all about because it is yours. Now, although they can support you and and be there for you, they can't do it for you. I learned that from my dad. I mean, he taught me everything I needed to know about basketball, but he could never get on the court and do those things for me. At some point, you have to step out in in your faith and and step out with your own skill set and do it. I mean, I knew what I knew why I was doing it very early on this this fight. I realized that I really wasn't fighting for myself. If it would have just been me, maybe I wouldn't have fought as hard. But I was fighting for a little girl that was my everything. I just felt like I hadn't given her enough to navigate this world without me. And I I felt like I hadn't taught her the things that she needed to be a functioning, positive, responsible citizen. It's hard when you're on your deathbed and, and you have that neck full of regret. It's hard it's hard to swallow that. So I just fought with everything I had and I just gave everything I had to God. And I never I never prayed that I got lungs because I, I knew what I was praying for. I just prayed that God would help those around me, that this was affecting by sitting having a front row seat to watching me die. But I could see the effect it was having on people especially my daughter. And so I showed her strength. I showed her how to be positive in the midst of something that's very tragic. Your mind is the most powerful thing we have, but it depends on what you feed it. It could be your greatest ally or your worst enemy. I want to interject a little bit. I, and maybe you're leading to it. But when you're talking about your daughter, because that, that really affected me, I think is all any of us who are parents or loved ones, young ones that we care about, 
that's also a, a leadership trait, taking, making sure that those who follow us or we care for are prepared for the world. And when you were thinking, and, and also t- the fact that you had this big reason to carry on, because so many of us, uh, I think there are a lot of individuals who don't have a why or it takes them a while to figure it out. And when you know your objective, it's much easier to follow through. And it's, and you, so when you were talking about your daughter, I want you to go back to that and tell us more about how that played out when you were trying to help your daughter along. Well, I just tried to show her that I would not, I was not going to allow my fears and my doubts to grow into monsters by me feeding them. Many times in life, we feed our fears and doubts. Now, when they become monsters and leave us unable to function, we become the why me guy. You know, why do things like this happen to me? Why can't I catch a break or things of that nature? Well, life has developed me into the being the why not me guy. God has put a lot on my plate, but God knows how big my plate is. And so if he has that confidence in me that I can handle this, then why wouldn't I have it in myself? And I've always been that kind of person. Like, I guess it's just the way I was raised. You always, whatever, whatever you're involved in, whatever you're doing, you just believe that, that you can do it. And then you go out there and you give it your best effort. You don't ever want to go into something saying like, I can't do this or can I do this? You don't want to be questioning yourself like in a negative way like that because you're kind of setting yourself up for failure right away. And so my dad always taught me, like, if you're going to do something, you better get it in your head and your heart first before you even make a game plan, before you even move one muscle. You better get it here first and then here. And then that's where I learned that from. That's where you learn. That's where you win more than half the battle is in your mind and in your heart. If you believe in yourself that you can do it, there's, I I truly believe in life, we're the only ones that can stop ourselves by saying things like I can't or what if, or even I'll try. Like the logo doesn't say just try it. You've never seen that t-shirt. And there's a reason for that. You know, if you say I'll do it, you have about a 90% chance of success. If you change one word, those chances go down to about 50% just with one word. and so. There truly is no try. There's only do. Either you're going to do it or you don't do it. But if you're over there saying, well, I'm trying, you're kind of like setting yourself up that you're, you're, you're taking your chances of success way down by even just saying that. And I'm really, for me, voicing things is very important to me because that's when you speak them into the universe and that's where you give them life, give them a chance to become something. And our words emit energy. And so we have to be very careful how we deliver them because whatever energy we're putting out there is what we're going to draw back to us. So that's, as a leader, that that's super important because if the people that are, are with you on your team or in your crew or your unit or whatever you, you refer to it as, your team, they're going to feed off of you. If they see doubt in your eyes, then it's good. You know, that's kind of like the flu. It's going to spread. They're not going to believe in the mission. If their boss is worried or scared or doubtful, how are they going to put forth their best effort if the boss doesn't have confidence in himself or the team? Hello, friends. Thanks for listening. A Squared Lamp Groups powers this podcast. Their memberships are tax-deductible donations that directly support their work developing people and organizations. But just for you, they're offering podcast listeners a special 40% off coupon code to join. Your benefits as a member include additional resources, perks, and access that you can use all year, including an additional 30 minutes of bonus podcast content for every episode. Simply use the code for listeners at checkout. That's the number four all caps, listeners, at checkout. They also are giving our listeners free gifts to use now. Go to their website, asquaredlamps.org forward slash podcast, and download your free My Success Course of Action worksheet. There is no cost, registration, or sales pitch involved. Just click it and save. 
Use it to work on something significant to you this month, maybe even something that sparks interest from today's podcast. Then click to join our free but private Stop Digging Podcast LinkedIn group, where the conversation continues between you, the hosts, and our guests. Don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And now, back to the program. You know, I'm enjoying this conversation with you, Mark, because your stories have been punctuating leadership qualities that are aligned very similarly to the resilience that we started off with. Because you talked about not quitting, you talked about optimism, you talked about what you described when you were talking about speaking things out, is leaders who don't see walls. And ironically, you build walls, but <laughs> but you're full of irony and that's okay. That's who you are. Leaders who see walls are hard to follow because they're speaking obstacles into existence. The obstacles are going to be there. And, and you've described a life of leadership where part of resilience is that you acknowledge that there is an obstacle, but you see past it, right? There's ways around it. Be creative, be innovative, be, you know, dig in, dig underneath, you know, find a way to overcome or get around it, climb over it, you know, so, something. And that and that's, speaks to real leadership, I think, is that when you're confronted with an obstacle, the resiliency skill is that you don't see it as, well, now it's over. (laughs) So you've really demonstrated that. And I just wanted to point that out. In life, there's always going to be problems. But for, for the right people, they don't look at the problem. They're looking at the solution. I mean, since day one of this planet, God created this planet and there was already a problem. There was no people, but there was also a solution. And so when things happen in your life, here's where the point where something happens. You can choose to move closer to the solution by operating in a positive mindset, or you can get angry and put yourself further behind the problem, waste all that energy on anger or frustration or stress. But now you have to figure out how to get that energy to get back to where the problem happened and then find more energy to begin to move to the solution. Oh yeah, when I when I was first diagnosed and they sent me home, I, I didn't get out of bed for five days. I, I thought the depression was gonna kill me before the lung disease. When they, they told me I would never do stonework again. And stonework was my passion. I know, like looking back, I know that that I was built for stonework. I had a very strong connection to stonework from a very early age, from a teenager. And then as I got older and I got deep into my career, I would even have recurring dreams when there was a deadline or there was a big job and something something big was up. I would have this recurring dream that I was chiseling this huge block of stone and it was so big I had to stand on another block of stone to get to the top of it. And there was this round part on the top that I needed to get off and I, I couldn't get it. And so I'm chiseling away and then I just give it all I have. And I hit it. And when I strike, it made me cough and I coughed out blood Well, it went on my arm and the stone. And then, and then I looked down and my whole body was covered in white powder. And all I was wearing was a loincloth. So I stepped off the block that I was standing on and I went to a little puddle of water to see my reflection. And I had blood spatter on my chin, my chest, my arm. And then I would wake up and I couldn't breathe. And I'd be in a cold sweat and I'd be freaking out. Well, that was my dream trying to tell me something. Because when you get silicosis fibrosis, there's one or two ways that you can pass. And that's either your lungs just stop working or you keep coughing so much that your pulmonary artery bursts. And then you bleed out within a minute. And like even when I was young and they were trying to teach me things about stonework, it wasn't like I was learning something for the first time. It was like as if what I was being told, I was just remembering it. So I truly believe that I did stonework in another lifetime. And I also believe that I did it as a slave, but I was loyal and I did good work. So I was rewarded in this life to be able to do it 
for monetary gains. But my connection to Stonework has been very deep, so much so that even after my second transplant in August of 2020, I returned back to Stonework. And the only person in the world to ever do so, the only stonemason in the world to ever return to Stonework after two double lung transplants. So let's stop right there for a second. So you, first of all, I want to say that dream that you, that recurring dream, that is a scary dream. That is very empowering. And I know you talk a lot about negative thoughts and these are those negative thoughts coming out in your dreams. How did you combat that? What did you do when you, in your waking hours? I, you know what? I kind of misinterpreted it. I just thought like, you better pick up the pace and make sure you get this done. I never really thought that deeply that my dreams are trying to tell me something's wrong with your body. This was years before I even got diagnosed. Oh, okay. Years and years before I even got started showing any signs of sickness. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow. And, and I never... I never even really put it together until way later on that like when I was sick and I started remembering, started delving deeper into this recurring dream that I used to have and then making the connection like this dream was trying to tell me a long time ago. It wasn't that there was a deadline on a job or there was something big going on in my work. It was something deeper than that. But I was so wrapped up in my work and my career that I never even put it together, but there was a lot of life lessons that I was taught because I got sick. You know, I took a lot of things for granted. And one was my skill of stonemasonry. So I took that for granted. And, and anything in life that you take for granted, whether it's a good job, a good relationship, something that you love, if you take it for granted, you can rest assured that it will go away. And and this was something that that I was guilty of. Because I was very skilled. And so I, I never really was living in the moment. I was always thinking ahead. We got to finish this job because we have another one to start in two weeks. And we got to finish that one in two weeks because we have a big one to start in, in a month. Or My head was not where my feet were at. My head was way ahead of, of where my feet were. So that's leadership presence for our audio listeners. <laughs> He's describing now some leadership presence. And now there's a huge push in organizations for meditation and leadership presence, practicing. And uh, you just described why that's important <laughs> and how you do it. Yeah. And I, I want to add, I want to find out a little bit more because uh, you said that you, in 2020, you had to have another transplant. Well, that was in 2016. So about three and a half oh, years into my first transplant. I I briefly went back to stonework, but I could see the writing on the wall and it just wasn't happening. It wasn't there. And so I walked away from it. But that one hurt pretty bad, too. I felt very defeated, but I got an opportunity to coach uh, high school basketball, girls basketball at a, a local high school in Santa Fe where, where I live. And so I took that opportunity and then I got a position working in the high school. Well, I was working in the in-school suspension room, and I was actually the guy handing out the tardy slips. Well, one morning when I was getting, I was getting ready for work, but I was kind of late, and so I was rushing because if you're handing out the tardy slips, that's not a good look to be showing up late, right? So <laughs> I was tying my shoes, sitting on the bed, and I stood up too fast, and I lost my vision, I lost my hearing, and I passed out. Well, I fell against my dresser and the handle from the dresser hit me right in between my ribs on my left side on my back. And it caused a pulmonary embolism the size of a nickel. Well, I had to walk away from my coaching positions. I was also coaching assistant varsity for boys soccer and the head, head girls softball coach. And I had to leave all those positions because that put me on my deathbed worse than ever before. So when I talked about earlier about Breathing through a straw for a year, that, that straw now became like the ones you stir coffee with. So at the end, this happened at the end of August 2015. And uh, about eight years ago at this time, the transplant team that I had, and I don't even need to say where they were at or what hospital they're at, they quit on me. They never told me I had a pulmonary embolism. When I went over there to get checked out because I knew something was up, 
they said I was in chronic rejection and that I had two months to live and there was nothing they could do for me. Oh my gosh. What were that? That's, I can't imagine how that impacted you to hear well, that. Initially it made me very angry because it made me feel like I wasn't worth fighting for. It made, it made me feel like they were trying to steal my hope, but I did. I took a page out of my dad's book and I took a pause. I calmed myself. And then I told them all, I looked them dead in the eye and I said, well, which one of you guys did God call? Well, which one of you guys did God call? Cause he didn't call me to tell me this. I didn't get that call. And they said, come on, Mark, you can't be in denial. This is really happening. You're not going to beat this. You're not going to make it out of this. And I said, look, I'm not in denial. I know something's up. Every time I, the air leaves my body, I feel the life leave my body too. But if God did not call you and he did not call me, yours is just an opinion. Albeit a professional opinion, but opinion nonetheless. So let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep fighting with God and Jesus as my team leaders. And it looks like you guys are ready to check out of this fight, but do it quick because I can't stand quitters. So get out of my face. And I was mad. I was really mad. And they didn't, they didn't believe me. And I told them, I'm serious. You guys need to get out of my face. And unless you can, I said, there's not really much I can do, but I bet I could throw this oxygen tank at somebody. And they looked at me and they didn't believe me. And then I started dismantling the tank. I took the regulator. I shut it down. I took the regulator off. I took the cannula off. And then when I started unscrewing it from the base and they heard the metal sliding up the metal, they, they hightailed it out that room. And I put those quitters in that hospital in my rearview mirror, and I never looked back. I, would, I knew I was dying, but I was coming home just to make it two months and one day so somebody could tell them, see, you were wrong because you don't know. I don't even know. Only God knows when my name is on that roll. And, but at three months, I got a phone call from the great doctors at St. Joe's Hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. And they agreed to give me an evaluation. And they're the ones that found the pulmonary embolism. I was there six hours. And I, I, I can clearly recall the doctor coming in to tell me, Mark, you have a, a pulmonary embolism the size of a nickel. And then he told me these words, and I'll never forget them. He says, I know you're coming here looking for a miracle, Mark, but I got to tell you, the miracles already happened. He said, you should have been dead two months and 25 days ago. We don't even know how you stayed alive long enough to be here today. And so this fight was made the first fight look like a warm up. And so that, that put me, people say it's one day at a time, but my fight turned into one sunrise and sunset at a time and eventually one hour at a time. But there, there must be some level of, dare I use the term confidence, that you're here for a reason until that reason is over, you're not leaving. Right. So, I mean, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And, and I say the term miracle, not implying some kind of magical, you know, potion, but defying the odds. Well, no odds, actually, the second time. The first time I was taken down to my last, the surgeon said, if I would have got the transplant, I would have been gone within a couple of days of the second transplant before I got the call. About a minute before I got the call, I had this sensation two times where it felt like my body was floating away. And I grabbed the covers and, and was literally hanging on for dear life. And then they called me and said, get to the hospital. Well, the first thing when I talked to the doctor, the first thing I told him was, hey, doc, I'm getting this weird sensation. And, he's, and I said, it feels like my body's floating away. And his eyes, like, they opened up big. And, and he said... That's not your body floating away, Mark. That's uh, that's your soul trying to leave your body. You're in your last hour of life. He said, you've been fighting this long. He says, you got to fight harder than you ever have now. You just got to keep fighting. He says, we're going to fight for you too. But when you talk about things being on God's time, I truly know the full meaning of that because he took me down to my last hour of life before he said, okay, it's time. Well, when you started off the story and this interview conversation, you were talking about how you used to be a Superman. No, I didn't used to be. I thought I was. And then I realized that Superman is just a comic book hero. He don't live on this earth. 
Right. But, but, you know, you were alone. You didn't have like a team mark at the beginning. How, how are you functioning now? You, you said you have relationships and people in your life now that are more supportive. What, what does team mark look like to you now? Well, of course, my daughter is, she's 27 now. I have a grandson who will be six here in about 20 days. So he's another, not just a why, but a who. Just like my daughter, she's not just a why, but a who. In December of 2018, I met the most amazing, beautiful, intelligent, and loving woman, hands down, as she's tops. And we got married, and it's going to be, we're coming up on our two-year anniversary. We got married in 2021. And um, she's really the one that's responsible for planting the seed in my head that I would someday become a public speaker and a motivational speaker and inspire people. And I got invited to speak at a respiratory therapist conference in 2019, a statewide conference in New Mexico. And she went with me. And I I didn't even prepare for this thing. I just went like, I'm just going to go talk to 300 of my friends, right? And I've never really <laughs> been nervous in front of crowds because I played in some in some basketball games in front of thousands of people. And I figured they're not going to be calling me names or racially slurring me or throwing things at me while I'm shooting a free throw. So I'll be good because I would make the free throws. And so it was not a hostile environment. So I'd be fine. And so I went and it went really well. Actually, I got a standing ovation. Well, on the way home from Albuquerque, she says, that's your next career. And I started laughing and I said, I'm not going to be a respiratory therapist. Those people have to be in the hospitals all the time. That's too much of a risk. I didn't mean that. You're going to be a motivational speaker. And I was like, no, that ain't me. That ain't me. But she kept telling me this. And then when I went back to doing stonework in 2020, actually, I, I went back to doing stonework because I was in a very dark place. I was lost. I didn't know my purpose. I didn't even, I started even questioning God as to why I was still here. And it wasn't just my medical stuff. Admittedly, it was some of my own bad choices as well. And uh, I went back to Stonework to find myself, to reclaim my power, reclaim my strength. And I really felt like I had left myself on a rock pile somewhere. I don't recommend anybody go back to what almost killed them to find themselves, but it worked for me and a lot of very unconventional things work for me, but they should all come with disclaimers. <laughs> it was hard. It was very painful. But when I got there, my soul was happy. My my soul was smiling. My soul was glowing. Although my body was hurting. Because in reality, nobody makes us come back to stonework at 51 years old. And apparently nobody's ever made a comeback to stonework after two double lung transplants. But that's where I find that my leadership skills are paying the most dividends because I'm showing people that the only impossible that exists is if you put it here yourself. You have to believe in yourself. Whatever it is, you got to you gotta give your, all of yourself to it. And when you do that, you show people how to do it. That's what a true leader does. They show others how to do it. And then after they learn how to do that, you ask them, now come and help me do this. But you go first. See, I mentioned the word boss before, and I kind of mistakenly threw that out there. It's a huge difference between being a boss and a leader. The boss usually sits back from behind calling shots. You do this, you do that, you go do the other thing. The leader teaches people how to do it. If you want someone to do things on the same caliber as you, you the only way that you can expect that is if you teach them. And then you lead. That's that's why they call you a leader, because you're going first. You're not sitting back and saying, do this, do that, and the other. And it's not easy being first. And it's not, because whatever comes, you get hit with it first. But it also comes with a lot of responsibilities, and it also comes with holding yourself accountable. Like me and my work, if somebody that's working with me, I never say people work for me. Because I'm there working the whole time. So the people that are working with me, if they make a mistake, and whoever the client is, 
comes to me and says, well, I don't like this. This is not right. This is whatever. I can't say, well, my guy over here, he messed up. Because ultimately, it's my responsibility because I'm the one that hired the guy. I'm the one that chose him. So, And also, his name is not on the check, right? It's my name, not Mark and who all the other guys that he brought with him. And so even if they mess up, it's still my responsibility to deal with it, not pass the buck, not make an excuse, not blame somebody else, but just go and fix it. And that's that's a true leader is first being accountable and then also sometimes having to clean up other people's mistakes, but not doing it in a manner that you're berating them or you're making them feel like they are of less value or they have no worth. It's we all make mistakes. Let's be realistic. Jesus isn't out here in our businesses working. And he's the only one that's ever walked this earth that was perfect. We're all going to mess up, including the leader. And and so you have to remember that, that when somebody who's on your team messes up, you can't go in there and just rake them over the coals. I, I mean, although sometimes some individuals, that's exactly what we would want to do, but it sets the wrong precedent because then the other people that are watching who haven't messed up now get in this place where they're afraid to mess up. And usually that's when you make mistakes is when you're afraid to mess up. And so it's all about teaching. See, I truly believe in life that the only time you lose is when you quit. The rest of the time, you're just learning or you have to make a pivot or you have to find another avenue to get to the place where you're supposed to be. But the only time you lose in life is when you give up and you quit. I'm just applauding you right now like so much. Like uh, you're my kind of leader because everything you've said, you've hit on almost every single point about the heart of a true leader. So I'm completely with you and I applaud you and um, I'd like to be on your team. And I also want to just say that I am very excited and I want to applaud you because going from alone and doing it all yourself to now at the end of our conversation, you're describing you know, the beauty of working in a team and with a team. And I just love that transformation. I I have to agree. I really enjoyed listening to you describe all these qualities of a leader because right now, many of these qualities are lost on some people. And we, I believe that there are people out, we have leaders who, they're leaders, but they have a crisis of these values. They don't have these values or traits. And you really explained it and shared those qualities with us and embody those and share them. I love the idea that we used to talk about the the teaching, the learning, the teaching, and the leading. They're all part of that continuum. I'm going to kind of wrap up this part because I could let you go on and talk forever because I just want to hear more of what you have to say because it's so strong and inspiring. But I think Susan was able to identify some of these wonderful things. You know, you, in the beginning, you were talking about your situation, how how you were living your life, and then you had this challenge, and you had the the lung transplant, and then having to go through that again, but always rising above it and finding the positive and being strong and moving forth. And I really liked what you had to say about that team of doctors who didn't believe in you. Because, you know, for people who don't believe or don't have faith, you know, they might accept that. And it's, and they've got to find a reason to move on in a different way. And your journey is very significant because now you are inspiring others to do the same. And that is just so amazing Susan, did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, I was going to say, um, where can people go if they want to book you as a speaker or learn a little bit more about your story? You can go to my website, thelungtransplantstonemason.com. And there I have my information, my email, my phone number. But I just want to add that those people that quit on me, they actually did me a favor because when they quit on me, That gave me the fuel for my fire to keep those flames burning hot, to keep my fight going. 
And it also later on down the line, after I was done being mad about it, I realized these people weren't cut out for this fight. And so it was better that they checked out when they did, because if they would have went further down the road with me, it would have been much worse. And so anytime in life when somebody quits on you, don't get mad. They're quitting because they know they're not cut out to continue down that road with you, whatever it is. Actually be thankful that somebody showed you their true colors when they did instead of going further down the line. And then when something's really bad, you're at a crossroads and it's a do or die, maybe a do or die situation that's even worse. Like then they quit on you. The effects of that would be much worse. And I actually ran into one of the doctors that quit on me. And and I did tell him, thank you for quitting on me because it gave me the fuel for my fire that I needed. And they weren't cut out for that fight. And sometimes you have to walk through the fires of hell to get to the good place. But you don't you don't take on that woe is me attitude. You have to be grateful. If you're walking through the flames, you have to be grateful that your legs still work. See, people, there's we forget that there's a flip side to everything. And we just sometimes focus on the negative side. But and, and then we lose the blessing and the lesson that's in there. And that's, and you just described perfectly what effective leaders do in order to self-manage. It's called leadership reframe. <laughs> Love that. So you, you just keep coming out with a mark and I'm just like, you lob them all over and I'm just going to hit them right back. So. Oh my gosh, this has been the best <laughs> conversation. I've just been listening and listening and then Susan chimes in, identify what you're talking about. Oh, and I feel like I've been- So many words of wisdom. And inspiration. I just want to thank you, Mark, for joining us today. This has been a wonderful conversation about how to move through adversity and come out on top and being a resilient person, but most importantly, a, a leader, how to show others to, to forge ahead, even when people tell you no, or they quit on you. And I am going to remember you for a long time. And I've written down these things because we need these reminders. Thank you so much. And if you'd like to learn more about Mark Rodriguez, please go to his website, The Lung Transplant Stonemason, and you will be able to contact him if you uh, do. And I know you have a, a book coming out soon, so we'll be able to uh, learn more about that. And uh, stay tuned for our bonus segment. Uh, hopefully, Mark, we can talk to you soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stop Digging Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Please like, subscribe, and share with a friend, and connect with us on our social media channels. This podcast is powered by asquaredlamps.org.